This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. And I'm Dr. Frank Lipman, New York Times bestseller and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. So, Frank, how are things going for you this week? Um, not bad. You know, uh, New York is slowly coming back. They seem to be, you know, people are pretty good with COVID. I must say everyone's got scared enough that most people wear masks and um you know restaurants are open especially outside and i wouldn't say it's back to normal but things seem to be coming back somewhat to normal um you know i take the train into work from westchester there you know very not that many people going in Uh, i took the subway for the first time the other day it was pretty empty so you know how long it lasts but it's it's interesting people are seem to be taking it seriously well fingers crossed that we don't have to deal with this too much longer yep i just i have to throw in i saw a new study that came out that was done i think in ferrets where they found this nasal spray that stopped spread of the of the uh coronavirus i think it stopped at a hundred percent i saw that. it was some it was like a decoy or something it was a, a peptide sequence that they just put it in the noses of these animals and it worked and i thought okay i want that can i buy some of that where do i buy that right so they're interesting developments on the horizon yep so um we're going to talk a little bit more about the gut frank and i'm wondering what new insights you have after our last discussion we talked about phages and you know the downside of phages and then the positive side of phages i wonder if you have any more comments about that yeah i mean i think we need to understand with phages i mean as with bacteria um as with you know phages are viruses they're good and bad and uh not all bacteria are bad and you need the good bacteria to function well. You need the good viruses to function well. So it goes way beyond good and bad. And um, my limited experience with the phages has actually been pretty positive in helping gut function. You know, I do think there's a place for it. We're not exactly sure, but my, my limited experience with using phages, obviously the the good ones seem to be pretty positive. So it seems uh, that, that this is really a coming option that exactly. people who say I've tried everything and I don't know what else to do, that this is a this is a really good way to go because, uh, you know, especially people that have chronic gut problems. And I'm, I'm sure you see a lot of that, the people that say I've tried everything and I've been on every kind of diet and I'm really confused and I'm, you know, I'm not happy with my gut. Right. And, and I think you just nailed it. I think, you know, I'd say at least half the people I see, maybe more are people who haven't been helped and have had chronic gut problems or 
chronic autoimmune problems and they come in, well, I've tried everything and I'm not getting better. I've tried every diet, whatever I eat is not helping. And I see so many people who come in with really good diets and they're still suffering. And, you know, just as a tip for all you listeners out there, if whatever you're eating is not helping or causing a problem and you're eating a clean diet, which I see a lot of people doing, you know, the problem is usually most probably in your gut. And until you correct the, the gut imbalances or you, you optimize your gut health a little bit more, you can eat the perfect diet and you're still not going to digest, absorb the foods you're eating. You still, certain foods are still going to create problems. Um, and I think people need to realize it. And I think that's why, you know, you know the, the whole lectin theory, for, for instance, I think is a good example you know, are lectins bad for, you know, people come in, well, you know, should our I- plants bad. They even ask our plants bad. Right. And because and you see, no, no, that's a good question because I see so many people come in and they're eating all types of plants and, and they're not feeling better. They're actually feeling worse. And why I've seen quite a number of people, you know, carnivores, they, all they're eating is meat and yes. they're actually feeling better. Which is, you know, which makes sense. Not that they should be on that for long term, but short term seems to help because it takes these plants or lectins or whatever you want out of their diets. And that's because their gut is off. So guys, you know, when, when food, normal foods like plants, just as a good example, are causing a problem, the problem is usually not the food. The problem is the gut and you need to correct the imbalances in the gut. That is so key. I saw a woman uh, the other day that had a long history of, of bloating and uh, she'd had a breath test that confirmed that she had uh, some kind of bacterial overgrowth, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The problem was that she had been on one course of antibiotic, strong antibiotic after another, and it hadn't helped. And, you know, so clearly just coming in there, you know, with big guns and blasting everything away was not the solution. Right. No. And, and my experience with SIBO and uh, gut problems in particular, or, or SIBO in, in particular, gut problems, but SIBO in particular, because, you know, there is an uh, antibiotic for SIBO, Zofaximin, which is yes. the standard drug used. And I, I used to use it, but what I found is, you know, it makes people feel better for a week or two or three, but then the SIBO and the symptoms come straight back. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, it's effective, but it's a short-term effect. So I use herbs now and you've got to use the herbs for actually often months. So that doesn't go away within two weeks or three weeks, but I find the, the herbs much more effective long-term than the Zofaximin, which is damn expensive anyway. But uh, and, and people sort of demand it or they really push for it because they think the antibiotics are going to clear it up. But it's definitely been my experience that it's a short-term effect and it, it does work often, but it comes back within a week or two. And um, so it's not, obviously not the right thing to do long-term. What's your experience been there, Bob? Same here. And the, the medical research on Zyfaxin or Rifaximin does show that the recurrence rate is very high. So it's a you know short-term fix, if anything. I think the biggest problem is that you have to address the underlying 
conditions that led to the SIBO in the first place. It, you know, yeah. was it a bad diet? Do they have insufficient hydrochloric acid? Right. Do they have motility problems? I think the motility problems are something that we're really just beginning to understand more. You know, what do I, for our listeners, what do I mean by motility? Well, normally the intestinal tract has this nice, smooth pattern called peristalsis. So it's, it's, it's contracting from one end to the other. And that contraction should start, you know, at the top at your mouth and move towards the other end at the rectum. And that's what allows us to drink water and stand on our head and still swallow the water, right? So there should be this nice coordinated electrical activity that moves in one direction. But in some people, it gets disordered. And there's a lot of different reasons that motility can get disordered. So if it's not dealt with or addressed, then that problem may persist even if you get the bacteria back to normal. Yep. What I see a lot of times with uh, SIBO is there's often an underlying yeast or some type of dysbiosis, which you know has made me realize is is SIBO, SIBO is just a form of dysbiosis. I mean, mm-hmm. because I've seen people with very typical SIBO symptoms and you do a SIBO test and it's negative and you still treat them for SIBO and they get better. You know, this the combination that I often use for, for SIBO, which is usually some type of oil, oregano oil, clove oil, thyme oil, things like that, but often oregano oil, which often unfortunately has this bit of a bit of an aftertaste that people don't like it. You burp it up. You burp yeah. up Italian. Yeah, exactly. And people don't like that but often a combination of oregano oil based formula with um a berberine berberine type of formula is incredibly effective i mean it's quite funny my health coach you know when i work with a health coach and after you've seen five or ten people like that they like you know they can treat a they're starting to treat these patients so much more easily than a a doctor or, or so much better than a typical doctor, because we see the same thing over and over again, and people respond to simple treatments, and and it's usually these herbal treatments of this dysbiosis, SIBO, whatever you want to call it, that are incredibly effective. You just got to take it for a while. I mean, it's usually at least a month or two that you need to take the herbs. Yes, yes, I agree. Because again, you're you're hoping that the body will eventually regulate itself. So you want to have a more gentle approach like the herbs to, uh, you know, allow things to gradually normalize. Exactly. So I wonder, do you find as an acupuncturist, do you find that acupuncture helps with motility problems or bloating? Yes, I think acupuncture definitely has a temporary effect. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, I, that was my intro into all of this functional medicine. I, I started with acupuncture. If you don't correct the underlying issues, the acu, you know, the acupuncture is going to help. So some people will feel better for a day or two, maybe a little bit longer. But if you don't address the underlying issues as well, then the acupuncture is sort of a waste of time. Um, so I've, as I've been doing this, you know, for longer and longer, I'm moving more. I mean, I still do the acupuncture, but I, you know, in the old days, I used to encourage people to come back every week, get acupuncture. It's going to help. Now I'm sort of doing acupuncture as sort of more of an add-on rather than as the 
underlying treatment for a problem. I mean, I think acupuncture, I love acupuncture, and I think it's a way of optimizing function in, in general. But if you're not addressing the underlying issues, then the acupuncture becomes less and less effective. So what do you think about, um, just to switch gears a little bit, what do you think about this notion of FODMAP diets or low FODMAP diets as a, and, and let me kind of frame that question a little bit. Um, you know, FODMAP diets, FODMAPs are, is, a, is an acronym for fermentable carbohydrates, you know, which are basically certain kind of food fibers and sugar alcohols like xylitol, maltitol, et cetera. So that is being recommended for people with chronic bloating or maybe any kind of chronic digestive issues. But other experts have come back and said, wait a minute, these FODMAPs are good foods. We don't want to be telling people not to eat these good foods. So there's, there's been some pushback about recommending FODMAP avoidance. So I'm wondering where you stand on that. I stand. I'll, I'll stand. I've got a strong stance on that. First of all, FODMAP diets are very difficult. Secondly, there's no question they help with the symptoms. There's no question they help with the bloating and, and the symptom and the gas. Absolutely. So they work for the symptoms. It's sort of like the acupuncture. But if you're not addressing the underlying cause, you're wasting your time. So people will feel somewhat better. And it's very, very difficult to stay on a FODMAP diet, if not impossible. And then long term, I agree. I don't think it's good to avoid a lot of those foods either. So my attitude to a FODMAP diet is yes, if it's helping you short term, no problem. But if we don't treat, if we don't kill those bacteria, you know, those that overgrowth of bacteria, if we don't let your gut correct itself, as you, you were saying earlier, then you're not solving the problem. So I have no problem with a short-term FODMAP diet if someone's prepared to do it because it helps symptoms. But if you need to do a FODMAP diet, you're not treating the underlying issue. That's my take on a FODMAP diet. It goes back to my philosophy on the diet. If, you, if, if you're eating a good, generally healthy diet and you're still having gut problems, then you haven't, you know, you've got a gut problem that needs to be addressed and you haven't addressed it. Well, I, I'm, I would say I mostly agree with you. I think how I use the FODMAP uh, avoidance approach is as a kind of elimination diet. Yep, yep. So, I, you know, if somebody says to me, uh, I think there might be something I'm eating that's making me blow. Right. Probably, you know, that's just a general umbrella kind of scenario. Then I might say, well, I want you to try this FODMAP diet for three to four weeks and see if you get better. And if you do, that might be a clue that there's something specific that's causing a problem. And then what I try to do is narrow it down. So I wouldn't say, oh, you went on this low FODMAP diet and you're better. So that means avoid all FODMAPs indefinitely. I completely agree with you that that's not a good thing for your microbiome. But sometimes I find it really helpful if a person can start with this big category of foods, notice that they get better and then narrow it down. And I've had a few people that eventually found that there was one or two foods that they just couldn't tolerate. Like they couldn't tolerate garlic right. or they couldn't tolerate asparagus or they couldn't tolerate beans. And they didn't know that before. So I'm, right. I'm generally okay, okay if they come out the other end saying, okay, I'm gonna expand my diet. I'm gonna include all those other foods, but I'm gonna avoid the asparagus from now on, because that food just doesn't work for me. So that's how I see the FODMAP diet 
being helpful is a kind of is maybe a less broad approach to an elimination diet where you you tell the person hey just avoid everything only eat you know cornish game hens and chard for three weeks and see how you do on the cornish game hens and chard right you know been there done that yeah no i agree yeah me too (laughs) um you know which goes back to the carnivore diet but I have a question. You know, there's a, a company called Vibrant Wellness that has this. I don't know if you know. We couldn't use them in New York. We're starting. We can now get around it. They have these interesting tests called ones a wheat zoomer and all the different 13 antigens of wheat. And they have a lectin zoomer and a corn zoomer and an egg zoomer. I don't know. Do you have any experience with their test? It's a finger prick test, and you get this result, but I mean, we've just started experimenting with it because we only now can use it in New York, um, but it's, it's quite intriguing to me. So have you had any experience with Vibrant Wellness and these Zuma tests that they do? Um, yeah, I've done a few of them. I've also used a lab called Cyrex. Yeah, we can't has, do Cyrex in New York. That's the problem. So you, you don't have experience. Well, Cyrex yeah. has very, C-Y-R-E-X has very yep. similar kind of results. And I think it's, these things are helpful for people who have more complicated problems who, you know, have already tried the basic things, maybe they already tried a wheat free diet, and they're, they're not sure, you know, they say, well, gee, I'm not, I'm not clear whether that gluten free or wheat free diet really made a difference. Or perhaps they're, they're really trying a gluten free diet, but they're, they're not as strict as they could be. And they're wondering, are there other things in foods that are like gluten that I might be reacting to, right? So people need to know this if they're designing a long-term program. So just to be clear, you know, for most people who suspect food reactions, I would do the usual avoid, you know, wheat, corn, dairy, soy, egg, sugar. So, you know, for the majority of population who are suspecting food reactions, that kind of simple elimination is fine. And I'm talking about the person who says, I eat food and my joints ache, or I eat food right. and I break out in a rash. And so I, I think it's something I'm eating. I can't narrow it down. So most people, I don't think, need all these fancy tests. I agree. You know, un, un, unless you're suspicious of celiac, and the reason that's important is because if you've got celiac, you'll never be able to eat wheat again, right? With a lot of food reactions, people find they can avoid them for months or a year or so, and they can eventually reintroduce them and they'll be fine. Not true for celiac. You can never reintroduce it. So if there's any question about that, that person needs to have the celiac blood test and they need to do it while they're eating wheat because if they go off the wheat, the test doesn't work. So, you know, that's kind of initial choice point is to go, do we need to, to ask the question, do we need to determine whether this is celiac? So the Cyrex test and the Vibrant America test are kind of, they're a little bit more fine tuning tests for the more complicated patient where you're really trying to sort through things. So I, I think they're legitimate tests. There's no question about that. It's just a question of, of when you do use them. Right. No, I agree completely. Well, I think it's time for us to take a break right now. So when we come back, we'll get into some listener questions. Sounds great. Hi, this is Dr. Frank Lipman with the Thorn Podcast. 
Do you have a health topic you'd like to be covered or a question you'd like to be answered on the show? Reach out to us at Thorn Research on Instagram and we'll try to cover it in future episodes. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast app. Stay up to date on the latest in medical research, the biggest moves in the health and technology industry and more when you subscribe to the Thorn Podcast. Thanks for listening. So now we're back, it's, and it's time to answer some questions that have come in from our online community. Uh, let's just go ahead and dive in with that, Frank, and yeah. uh, address this question. What are the symptoms of an unhealthy gut? How does a person know if their gut isn't healthy? So that's a great question, because most of the time, but not all of the time, people will have bloating, gas, maybe some reflux, maybe a little bit of uncomfortable feeling. They're not pooping as well. They're not having a good, regular, firm poop every day. It's a little bit loose, a little bit constipated. So those are the typical gut symptoms that people will ha have with an unhealthy gut. But I have seen many, many people who come in presenting with either a skin problem or pain in their joints or um, feeling having brain fog or being moody and not having any gut symptoms or not aware that they have gut symptoms. So typically the symptoms of an unhealthy gut will be gut symptoms, but not always. I have seen a number of people over the years, um, quite a good number actually, who didn't have gut symptoms, but presented with symptoms, you know, whether it's in their skin or their joints or their moods, um, or you know, other aspects of their health who are being affected, even weight gain, for instance, um, without having gut problems. W what has your experience with that been, Bob? Uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm right there with you. Uh, I think sometimes it's challenging if a person shows up in the office with, uh, say, recurrent inflammation in the joints. And I'm not just talking about aches and pains from arthritis. I'm talking about the person who says, boy, every now and then my joints get all red and hot and swollen. So I'm thinking you've got an autoimmune disease and there's a huge amount of data that food reactions, which are really starting in the gut, can be the trigger for rheumatoid arthritis. So that can be a, a challenge to a person who says, well, my guts feel fine. And yet I'm telling them, I think you need to do an intestinal microbiome test and a test for inflammatory markers in your gut, even though they say, I don't have gas, bloating, diarrhea, or pain or anything like that. And that the same thing might be true for a person who's got a mood disorder, that they don't necessarily have to have any GI symptoms at all for me to bar embark on that journey of investigating what's happening in their gut. I don't always say the person needs a stool test, but sometimes it can be very helpful and instructive. Yep, no, no, I agree. Um, and in fact, that's usually why even, you know, I see a lot of autoimmune problems and, and maybe the next podcast, we can talk about autoimmune problems, leaky gut, et cetera. But I see so many autoimmune, especially young women who come in with autoimmune problems and, and some of them just don't have gut symptoms. And the problem is actually in the gut where the problems start. And because of their, the damage to the intestinal 
lining and what we, we, we've spoken about earlier on, they become more reactive to various foods or various metabolites of foods or, or, or bacteria. And this triggers inflammation throughout the body. So yes, I think if someone is presenting with these inflammatory symptoms anywhere in the body, we always need to look at the gut, even if they don't have a problem. And, you know, starting someone off on a elimination diet is often the place to start. Well, that segues into the next question, which came in. A person asked, how do I clean my gut? And I, I guess I would add to that. Do you think that fasting is a good way to do it? Or do you use, or are you more prone to go an elimination diet rather than fasting? Is there is there a downside to fasting? Well, I use both. And I always, you know, when I, when I think of cleaning out the gut, to me, that's using antimicrobials as well. Uh, I do um, use fasting because I think fasting is a way of, you know, does more than just rest the gut. I think fasting, you know, whatever cleaning means, I think fasting definitely helps with gut problems. But most people, you know, for me, cleaning the gut is using antimicrobials to create more balance for lack of another term. You know, I, mean, I hate the term killing the bad guys and supporting the good guys, but you know, that's sort of a very simplistic way of looking at it. But I do use antimicrobials to clean out the gut. And always at the same time, I'll use some type of elimination diet. And yes, sometimes fasting too. Uh, and you know, I'll go once again, the whole carnivore diet to me is an elimination diet. You know, people say, well, I tried the carnivore diet and I feel great. And that's because I think they're eliminating a lot of the food allergens or whatever you want to call the different food particles that may be creating you know, triggering inflammation in the body. So yes, I use antimicrobial herbs, I use elimination diets, and I use fasting, usually a combination of all three. I, I totally agree. And I do all that as well. The one thing I might add is that I'm fond of using medical food powders. I, I like so, for example, Thorne has got a medical food powder called MediClear, MediClear Plus. It, the idea behind that is that it's a, an easily digested plant-based protein that, uh, you know, takes the load off digestion, right? So, you know, people, and I especially do that for someone who says, well, I just can't fast. I feel weak or headachey, you know, nauseated when I fast. I say, well, you can use this, this powder that's designed to support your gut and support your liver. And you can do that for up to three days, you know, just that powder in water or maybe in a little bit of, of pear juice or apple juice, just so it's got some flavor or maybe you can you know, put it in a blender with some bananas and, and a little bit of ice. So you've got a smoothie. Sometimes I find that that's a really good avenue for people who, who need to do a gut cleanse that, you know, are, are again, not up for anything more aggressive. Right. Yeah. I, I do the same thing often. I just don't use the, the juices and the banana. I use avocados. I tell them to use avocados, oh. uh, which makes it nice and thick <clears throat> like a banana. But what I've actually used sometimes is bone broth. Yes. You know, we have Brodo in New York, um, and the chef is actually a, a friend of mine, Marco Cunard, crazy, crazy guy, but he, he lovely, uh, you know, one of these lovely, crazy New Yorkers. I think I met him at your book, uh, when your last book came out. Right, very talented guy, and he makes the most delicious broths. And that, now they deliver in New York. I think they may even deliver nationally, but... So we get people to do like a three-day broth cleanse. 
and people love that. Um, first of all, his his broths are delicious, and you know, people also get they you know, you know the broth has nutrients which support the gut. Um, collagen, they, right? A lot of yep, collagen. Yep, and and he will, he, you know, his whole argument that the collagen in broth is much better for you than the collagen you get. He goes off on the collagen powders. Not that I'm against collagen powders at all, but you must hear him go off on that. Um, but obviously he makes his broth. But the broth, so I've been using broth a lot as well for people to rest their gut. Uh, I have to say I love a good broth, but it's um, it's pretty expensive if you yes. you know if you buy it at Whole Foods and you buy these little bitty jars for ten bucks and and I can drink the whole jar in one sitting. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Uh, so better to find a fresh source of it, I think. Yeah, and make your own. It's actually not that difficult to make. In fact, in my last book, How to Be Well, in the one before my, my aging book, there's a whole section with Marco and he gives some recipes in it. So that's a good <clears throat> shameless plug for How to Be Well. No shame, no shame. <laughs> so uh, here's a, one last question I think we should we address quickly. My mom says acne breakouts are coming from my gut. Is she right? What do you think well, about that? Well, she could be right. It's as you pointed out, you know, you acne is often inflammation in the skin. So yes, you know, acne is complicated, can be related to hormones as well. Um, there can be other causes, but often, especially acne rosacea, I find cleaning out the gut is very effective for, for helping acne. So, you know, Often it's multifactorial, but your mom is right. Maybe only partially, but may not only be partially, but cleaning out the gut is when someone comes to me with acne, that's definitely one of the things I will do is clean out the gut. I mean, there's often hormonal stuff that needs to be addressed, but cleaning out the gut is, is usually part of a, a treating, you know, treating acne. I, I totally agree. And uh, the only thing I'd add to that is that carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates, seem to be a big part of the problem. Uh, we know that people who eat a lot of sugar can have hormonal imbalances as a result of that sugar. And the hormones, especially insulin, can go up excessively. And that can affect the bacteria that grow in the skin. So you know, the whole idea that the only way to treat acne is by giving antibiotics may be a little bit, shall I say, bass backwards. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I have, you, you know, when I take a history from especially a lot of these young women who come in with autoimmune problems, so many have had, had chronic courses of antibiotics, whether it was for acne or for chronic ear infections as a kid. But I'd say probably at least 50 and that's percent or that and 50 percent is being very conservative have had multiple antibiotics when they were younger you know and often these long-term antibiotics for acne so we see the consequences of these what i would say irresponsible antibiotic treatments for you know problems that definitely do not need antibiotics not that antibiotics are not needed sometimes but the overuse of antibiotics is causing so many problems in this next generation and, and often autoimmune problems. Absolutely. Well, everybody, thanks so much for listening. We hope you've had fun. Uh, I think Frank and I always have fun when we do this and uh, we never know exactly where this is going to go. So uh, I hope you found this useful and we look forward to talking with you again in the future. 
Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Research. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.